Good morning, church family. I'm really, really thankful to be here um, with everyone. My prayer is that we would be able to uh, hear God's word, um, that it would speak to our hearts, and that we would be able to walk away here with a new resolution to be faithful to him, to follow him, and to accept his grace in our life. So to begin, first of all, let's just um, kind of together bow down our heads and ask for God's presence, his spirit to guide us and to be here with us. Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath morning uh, just humbly asking for your presence, humbly asking for your Holy Spirit to be within us, to speak to our hearts from your word. I ask that you would help us to put aside um, our own self-interest, our own pride, and that we would be uh, teachable, Father. Uh, and I ask that you would um, just bless us right now in this, in this Sabbath day. In your son's name, we ask all these things. Amen. All right, so this morning, um, before we begin, I want to kind of put an idea, a thought in your head. Um, for myself, I know that I, I'm, I'm, I have a very hard time following verbal directions. So if I'm driving somewhere and I'm lost and I you know, don't have any other way and I have to stop, ask for directions, or if a friend tells me of a place that we should go to and they verbally describe how to get to this place, I have a very hard time uh, kind of taking verbal directions and applying them to the, the actual location where I'm at. To compensate, I try to always have maps with me, either physically or on my phone. Before we drive somewhere, it always helps if I'm able to look online, you know, where the highways go, where up and down north and south is. And if I, I feel like if I have, you know, this mental picture in my mind, then maybe if, you know, I have to ask for directions, I might do better. Sometimes, it, you know, it, it works out that, you know, if, you're, if we're hiking, and I've never looked at the map before. You know, you know we end up missing uh, the, the place where we should have turned, and we have to hike a lot longer than we normally would. And I'm sure we can all think about moments in our lives where things just went over our head. You know, we were given an instruction, we were in a situation where something happened, and the real meaning, the real intent that was taking place just completely went above us. You know, we just completely missed it. It can be frustrating at times. It can be um, funny at times. But when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to scriptures, there are so many moments where things that God was trying to do uh, went over the heads of the people involved in a way that, that was just very sad for God. And the results uh, can sometimes be um, very sad. And so this morning, I want to kind of ask you to join me as we think about some of the warnings that Jesus gave before his death. So the title of the message today is Jesus Warns of His Death. And the, the reason I want to spend some time thinking about this is because I've often found it surprising that, you know, thinking about Jesus' ministry on earth and his preparation for the ultimate sacrifice that he paid for you and I, he gave multiple warnings of his death to his disciples. And he was actually strangely specific about what was going to happen. Uh, the first one of these, um, there's, there's three main instances in which Jesus warns of his death. And I want to go through each one. The first one of these occurs in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 33. And I want to ask you to join me uh, in the scriptures there. Matthew, sorry, Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 33. And I, as we go through these three instances, there are things that I want you to notice because we want to try to build a theme here of these three instances in which Jesus warns of his death. So as we go along, for each one of these, I want you to notice what the disciples were doing when Jesus warned of his death. I, and I want you to see what Jesus' response is 
to their, to their response. And then I want you to see what Jesus' lesson is for this warning. So for every warning, there is, there is a mistake the disciples made and then a lesson that Jesus um, gave them. So Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 33. But before we, do, before we read that passage, I actually want to look at a little context because we need to have a mental picture of what's taking place here. So Mark chapter 8, let's start with verse 27. Now Jesus and his disciples went out that towns of Caesarea, Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others, and others one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. So this is a moment where, if we pause for a second, you would say that Peter had, strangely, a lot of awareness of who Jesus was at this point. You know, he's identifying him as the Christ, which we know is, you know, the, the Son of God, this, this promised person, that being that would come and, and, and renew God's promises to Israel and to his people. And so they, they have, Peter has this awareness of what is taking place, and it seems like Jesus sees this awareness and, and takes this as an opportunity to make them even more aware of his future plans, his role in salvation. And so he opens this little bit of an extra window of understanding. In verse 31, we said, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, get, be, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. So it's an interesting, an interesting response. First of all, Jesus describes what's going to happen. And the reason I, I want to pause here is because I want you to notice that Jesus, Jesus is specific about what he is warning. He's saying that, number one, he's going to suffer at the hands of who? the elders, the, the chief priests, the, the, the religious leaders of his time. So he's, he's not living, leaving it up to guesswork as to who it is that he's going to suffer at the hand of. And then furthermore, he says that he's actually going to die. So, you know, very explicitly, he's telling them there is going to be death involved in the sacrifice that I'm going to make. And then he specifies that he, his death is going to last three days, and then he's going to rise up again. Now, what, did it, what is the disciples' response to Jesus' revealing of information? Part of it, we have to maybe do a little bit of imagination, but we can, we can think of, of, of Peter, you know, what, what his response is. Um, he, he begins to openly, verse 32 says, and he spoke this word openly, and then Peter took him aside and began, began to rebuke him. This is the same Peter that just a couple of verses before had said, you are who? the Christ, right? And then immediately after, when Jesus makes this revelation of who he is, who his plan, what his plan is, Peter, what, 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 what does Peter do, basically? He rejects Jesus' revelation. Because when, I, when he says, I am rebuking Jesus, he's basically saying, you know, you shouldn't be saying these things. You shouldn't be planning for these things. Je Peter's idea, his worldview of what Jesus was to be did not involve Jesus dying, did not involve Jesus suffering at the hand of the religious leaders. And Jesus notices this. It's basically a, a rejection of his plan. And so 
In verse 33, when he rebukes Peter, he's not rebuking just Peter, but he's rebuking the spirit of the words that were being said, which were words of doubt, words, words that rejected God's plan for humanity. And that is why he says, get, be, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. So first of all, we have, when we kind of want to see a pattern here, first of all, we have Jesus revealing the details of his death, the details of his plan. Secondly, we have one of the disciples rejecting this plan. And then third, we're going to see that Jesus has a specific answer, a specific lesson to this instance in which the disciples completely missed the point, and that is verse 34. So if you would read with me, verse 34 says, When he had called the people to himself, and this is a, a little bit later, with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So based on the, on the story that's taking place, it seems like after this instance of Jesus telling them what's going to happen occurs after he rebukes Satan for the words that came out of Peter. It seems like a little bit of time happens. More, you know, crowds, people come to him. And then in verse 34, he has his lesson that he gives. But if you kind of think about what happened before and then what happens after, it's easy to see how the message that Jesus gives in verse, verses 34 and 35 relate directly to what Peter was doing in the verses previously. So, Peter had rejected God's or, or the idea of Jesus sacrificing his life. And then immediately after, Jesus gives his message that in order for them to be able to be partakers of the kingdom of heaven, in order for them to be great in the kingdom of heaven, they had to adopt an attitude of self-sacrifice, an attitude in which they were willing to minimize the value of their own lives for the sake of the value of the lives of everyone else. So putting themselves second, putting themselves even last before the purposes of God. And I, I, really, I really wonder at the verses, you know, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? I mean, there's nothing more sobering than the idea that you seeking for the good of yourself at the very end, you know, leads you to losing everything that you were hoping for. And when I think of this, this idea of, of this, or this lesson of denying yourself, of, of you know, choosing submission um, I think of this passage as, as found in uh, the book Adventist Home, uh, page 409, which is talking about some of the principles of, of what a, a godly Adventist uh, Christian home would look like. And it says, uh, and this is kind of a, a prayer that is said here, I will not spend precious moments in reading that which will be of no profit to me and which will only unfit me for the service of others. I will devote my time and my thoughts to acquiring a fitness for God's service. I will close my eyes to frivolous and sinful things. My ears are the Lord's, and I will not listen to the subtle reasoning of the enemy. My voice shall not in any way be subject to a will that is not under the influence of the Spirit of God. My body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and every power of my being shall be consecrated to worthy pursuits. So this is kind of a prayer that in my mind kind of manifests the idea of what it means to have a life that is completely surrendered, a life that is completely dedicated to the purposes of God. 
Now let's go to the second prediction that Jesus makes of his death. This is found in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 32, so a little bit after what we were just reading. And we know that this is the second time that Jesus predicts his death. So Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 32, and we read together. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it, for he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. In verse 32, But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. So some time goes by. The disciples with Jesus are moving through as they, were, as they were in their ministry. And Jesus chooses to have a time in which it is just him and his disciples. Why? Because he wants to further expand on this revelation, this prediction of his death. So Jesus is warning them. And this time he goes on to, to add a little bit of an extra detail to what is going to take place. Not only does he describe, you know, in the first instance he described who he was going to be be surrendered to who were going to be the people responsible for taking his life. And then in this instance, he goes on to expand by saying that he was going to be betrayed at the hands of these people. And it was because of betrayal that he was going to have to give his life. So he's adding uh, an extra layer of information. He goes on to further confirm the fact that this would involve him losing his life. And after he was to be killed, he gives again this hope that he was going to rise up again on the third day. So we all know, you know, how, how accurate this prediction is. Um, but it is surprising to read again in verse 32, even more specifically than the first time, that the, the disciples could not accept this revelation, this prediction that Jesus was making. In verse 32 it says, But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. So we know now uh, Jesus' prediction, what he was saying. We know in verse 32 that they rejected him. But what was taking place in the disciples' minds in the time surrounding this? Let's read the verses that follow. So right after verse 32, when they could not understand the saying, instead of trying to clarify with Jesus, trying to clarify what's going on, uh, they decided to keep it to themselves. And in verse 33 says, And then he came to Capernaum. And when, is he, when he was in the house, he asked them, what was it that you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set, them, and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him into his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. Can you guys start to see a parallel of, as to what happens every single time that Jesus makes a revelation, and that revelation goes completely above the minds of the disciples? There's a common theme, a common lesson that Jesus wants to give in answer to people completely missing his word, his revelation, his prediction. So just to kind of clarify... Jesus makes a prediction of who, of what the ultimate result of his ministry was going to be. He specifies what is going to take place. He, he, he further identifies that the reason he's going to have to sacrifice his life is because of betrayal. Not just the betrayal that happens at Gethsemane, but the betrayal that happened in the Garden of Eden. That's the reason why he has to give his life. But then when the disciples receive this, instead of spending their time on the road 
talking about what this meant, how they could, how they could process this in their mind, their subject of discussion was who was going to be the greatest. What is Jesus' response to that? He says, he brings up a child in front of them and says, you have to be as a, a child. Whoever wants to be first is going to be last. And this kind of brings us back to the verses that we read in chapter 8, where it says in verse 35, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. So it, it is as if, as if um, you know, God is, God is saying, you know, in order for you to understand what I'm saying, you have to be as a child. You have to be as this, as this, uh, this serving mentality. Um, there's another verse that I would, would like you to write down, Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. Maybe we can go there right now. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Kind of describing this attitude, this, this, this spirit that Jesus was trying to embody and teach to his disciples. And we're going to start with verse 5. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of what? A bondservant. And coming in the likeness of man, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has, has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. So what, what occurs before God is able to exalt someone? There has to be complete self-denial, complete sacrifice of oneself before God is able to exalt someone. That in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this, this verse is amazing. It's so humbling. It's so beautiful. When you think about the fact that Jesus, before the fall, there was no reason why he couldn't compare himself to God because he was God. And then he takes up the nature of man and he humbles himself to the level of what? Not just any man, but to the level of a servant. And it is only then, then Jesus, that God is able to magnify him even above his original position because of that sacrifice. And in the end, everyone will be able to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So this is the second prediction that Jesus makes. Let's go to the third. This is the last, the last opportunity that Jesus has to warn his disciples of what is to take place. And this one is found in Matthew. Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. Matthew 20. 17 through 19. And if you notice, I, my Bible actually, on the, on the, on the little uh, description for the paragraph, it says, Jesus a third time predicts his death and resurrection. So verse 17 says, Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the 12 disciples aside. So notice how this always occurs in a very private, intimate moment between Jesus and the disciples. This is very privileged information. He feels that maybe this time the disciples are ready, humbled enough to be able to receive wisdom from Jesus, predict this prediction from Jesus. So he takes the 12 disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. 
and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge him and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. This is the third description. And this time he combines the information in the first two predictions and he adds a third, or he adds more information. So he says that he was going to be betrayed. He, he once again confirms that it is going to be to the scribes and to the priests. And this is what he has said before. And this time, he also describes what happens immediately after he is given to the scribes and the priests. He says that he was going to then be handed off to the Gentiles. You know, and they know the Gentiles to be the Romans, you know, in, in, in their society. And they were going to scourge him for a while, to mock him, and to crucify him. How more specific could you get in a prediction, right? And this happens while they are on the road to Jerusalem. You know, we're talking very little time. He's, he's trying every possible way of helping the disciples deal with what is to come. Yes? That's true. I, I, do, I do believe that he knew um, that the information was completely missing the disciples' understanding. And I think he knew why as well, which is why if we look at what happens immediately after, it kind of, kind of builds a theme of what's taking place. Uh, let's, let's read verse 20 um, of, of Matthew chapter 20. What is happening immediately after this revelation takes place? Then the mother of Zebedee's son came to him and her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. Then he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Then he sa then said to him, We are able. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by the Father. And going back to what you were just saying, um, I, I do think that he, he, he knew that they were going to be surprised anyways. Um, but I, I felt like all of these predictions that were taking place were necessary because after the event, the disciples needed to be able to go back and look and trace the way that, you know, Jesus was leading them. And I think it's the same for you and I as well. So I, I, I definitely agree there. So let's read a little bit more. Um, and when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased, verse 24, with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Can you see the pattern that's taking place in every single instance? Jesus predicts his death with more detail as time goes along. 
the disciples are so immersed, so consumed by the idea of personal greatness, personal pride, the, the ultimate glory of the mission that they were on, so consumed on, on the, the I, I would even say the righteousness of their cause to completely miss what Jesus was trying to tell them. Here we're talking about two of them aspiring to be on Jesus' right hand and on his left. I mean, these are, in a way, if you think about it, these are good aspirations. They're trying to be a key leading part of Jesus' kingdom, his ministry, the, the, the thing that, that Jesus wants to be accomplishing. They want a hand in that too. And so if you look at it from a strictly human perspective, you could say that they have wonderful aspirations, wonderful goals. And then when this information gets leaked to the rest of the disciples, you know, that creates a little bit of, of discord and discussion and, and some anger in them. But I find it so fascinating that every single time that Jesus makes a prediction, the disciples react as expected. He brings about this lesson, this continuing theme that he has to the, to the reality of humanity not being able to understand his purposes. And that is, on this third one, you know, he says, in order for you to be great, you have to become servants of one another, as I have become a servant of you by giving my life for yours. And so he kind of encourages them in a way to seek a life of sacrifice, of servanthood for one another. So these are the three predictions, the three instances in which Jesus predicts his death. On each and every one of them, the disciples were so consumed by self-interest that they missed Jesus' prediction. And every single time, Jesus' lesson was one of submission, it was one of serv servanthood, and it was one of sacrifice. Um, the, the, uh, the book Acts of the Apostles, which is one that describes the ministry of the disciples after the, the Gospels, uh, has this passage, page 543, paragraph 2. It says that one who stands nearest to Christ will be he who has drunk most deeply of his spirit of self-sacrificing love. Love that vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, and thinketh no evil. That is from 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5. It is love that moves the disciple as it moved our Lord to give all, to live in, to live in labor and sacrifice even unto death for the saving of humanity. That is the description of one who stands nearest to Christ. And this, was, this is what Jesus was trying to instill in his disciples. And it was something that they were not going to understand until much later. Now, did these warnings do any good to the disciples? Ultimately, in the end, yes, but not immediately. And I want you to notice that there's one more instance in which Jesus tries to sneak in a little bit more of information. This is in Matthew chapter 26. And if you know kind of the chronology of Matthew, this is very late in the story. Matthew chapter 26, verse 32. And this is just a little bit of extra information that he's hoping will stick with them. Matthew chapter 26, verse 32, and says, but after, well, I, let's get some context. Verse 31, then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Interestingly, uh, the response is predictable. Uh, verse 33, we see Peter answering and saying, you know, this will not be me. I will be there by your side. Um, so kind of a similar instance. Um, 
But Jesus is just trying to, 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 to kind of put the information in their minds so that at the end of it all, they will be able to look back and see uh, the way in which God was trying to lead them. So we know, we know the story of, of Jesus' sacrifice. It is one that you know, should, should fill us with, with awe and, and, and love for him. Uh, but interestingly, I want you to also see a pattern in the way in which Jesus meets his disciples after his resurrection. So there are three predictions, three instances in which Jesus predicts his death. But then there are also three encounters or, or initial encounters that Jesus has with his followers immediately after his death. So what is the first, very first encounter that we can uh, discern from the different Gospels in which Jesus meets one of his followers? What do you think that is? Yeah, so the, the very first person that Jesus meets is most likely Mary Magdalene. So let's go uh, to Matthew. Let's go to Matthew chapter uh, 28. Matthew chapter 28, uh, verses 1 through 10. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. And so it goes on to describe what is taking place. Um, verse 8, so they went out quickly after they, 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 they see everything that's been taking place. They see the angel. Let's read verse 7. Uh, they see the angel and it says, And so go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you unto Galilee. There you will see him, and behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. So they're going to tell the disciples, right? And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will meet me. So they have seen the tomb, they have seen the angel, they see instructions that confirm the instructions that Jesus had given immediately before, and they go on to tell the disciples. And we can kind of, we kind of know the story, but let's go to Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 11, to see the response of the disciples to this, these wonderful news. Uh, Mark chapter 16, uh, verses 9 through 11. Now, when he had rose early in the first day, this is kind of a repetition as well, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. And she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and he had been, and, and had been by, seen by her, they did not believe. So the very first encounter with Jesus is with Mary Magdalene. He tells them to tell the brothers, tell the disciples that he will meet them in Galilee. And what do they say? No, it can't be. And this is in the context of them mourning, of them crying, of them being together, you know, just trying to comfort each other. But when faced with the good news and instructions for what to do, uh, they, they reject it. So there's a second encounter. Who, who are the, the next two people that Jesus meets with? It's the two disciples on the road, right? So Mark 16 as well, this time in verses um, 12 and 13. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went, and we know the story from other portions of the Gospels, but it says, and they went and told it to the rest, but what happened? But they 
did not believe them either. So, again, you know, these disciples, they come back to the rest of the disciples and faced with a second row of witnesses, a second uh, batch of, of people telling them to rejoice, telling them the instructions that Jesus has for them, they still reject them. And then there's a third encounter, and this one we can read about in Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, so if you would go there with me. Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 43. And this, is, this, happens, um, this happens finally, you know, at, at the place in which the disciples were located. Um, the verse 35 and before is the disciples um, on the road to Emmaus. And then verse 36 reads, Now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he, said, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy, and, but, but while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, and he said to them, "Have you any food here?" So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate in, sorry, and he took it and ate in their presence. Then he said to them, verse 41, "These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you." that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but I tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with the power from on high. So this is, this is a beautiful culmination to the story, but it is also a third instance in which, even with Jesus in their very midst, all of them together, having visual proof before them, it took divine intervention for them to finally accept the truth that Jesus was telling them. And it, it's fascinating to me because, you know, if, if, you, if you look, if you read carefully, um, even while touching, verse, 40 says, says, verse 41 says, but while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? So even after touching them, they were still reluctant to accept, reluctant to believe. And it wasn't until verse 44 and 45 where he has to intervene and like, you know, spiritually open up their minds and, and in a way almost divinely enable them in order for them to, to accept the truth of what had happened. Now, there's, there's so many different directions, there's so many different lessons that we could take from here. And I, I something that I want you to walk away with from reading these things is, is basically think about what it is that God is trying to tell you from the story of the disciples. And there's many, like I said, many lessons, many directions that we could take this. Um, we, we think about, um, we, we try to describe what is taking place, and, and basically it's this overwhelming sense of skepticism that the disciples had, this inability to, to 
to perceive spiritual understanding. But it seems like at every single step of the way, Jesus had an answer to the problem of lack of belief. He had an answer to the problem of the human inability to believe and to have faith in that which we cannot see and that which we cannot experience. And it seems like at every single time, Jesus' answer to this question was, was one cohesive theme, one cohesive idea, and that is a spirit of self-denial, an attitude of servanthood, and a life of sacrifice. And if you put all that together, it seems like it is the only context, the only situation in which it is possible for you and I to be partakers of, of Jesus' wisdom, of, of the truths from the scriptures, of what he's trying to tell you and I on a daily basis is only in a life that is lived in sacrifice, in a life that is lived in humility. And if you think about it, it makes sense. You, how, how is it possible for a human mind to accept truths that naturally do not come to us, that are, are not you know, logical when it comes to the, the, the science of, of what we see and, and, and feel around us? The only way that is possible is if that mind has been trained and, and allowed to surrender some of its control to a higher power. And when we think about it, you know, a lot of, a lot of times, you know, we, we, we read the scriptures and a lot of the concepts make sense. You know, we, we can logically explain what it means, you know, for Jesus to sacrifice his life and how that pays, you know, for our sins and how because of him we have the hope of eternal life. And we can think of, of the beauty of grace, you know, obviously things that are, are, are so grand for our mind to grasp, but we can kind of explain some, you know, some of the things that we find in scripture. We can explain the stories. We can explain the teachings that Jesus gave to you and I. But that is, as we can see from the example of the disciples, that is often not enough for truth to have an effect in our lives. It is not enough for me to be able to verbalize the whole of Scripture because I could, I could literally explain everything and say everything, and yet it could still not have a saving influence on my life and on yours. And so how is it possible then to have the power of the scriptures have an effect on, God, on us? How is it possible for God's word to then have an effect on us? It is only in the context of a life lived in self-denial, in servanthood, in, in sacrifice. Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 3. Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 3. I, I know it's a difficult book to find sometimes, so I'm just going to read it, but you're welcome to look it up. We have an instruction that I believe applies to us today. It says, Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 3. It says, Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness, seek humility, and it may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. I'm going to read it one more time. Seek the Lord, all you who of the earth all the meek of the earth. So Jesus has an invitation for a certain category of people to seek him. Why? Maybe because it is only that category of people who is in a place or in a position where they will be able to seek him and to, and to find him. But it says, Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness. Seek what? Humility. And it may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. And I also want to read the scripture reading for today, which is actually Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. 
which is, I believe, an even more current appeal to your heart and mine. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may be able to discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Notice here how this verse summarizes everything that we've been talking about today. The apostle here is inviting us to do what? To sacrifice our bodies, to present our bodies as a sacrifice to God, right? He says to do it as a living sacrifice, one that is holy and acceptable to God. He that further describes that that sacrifice, what does that mean if, if we ask in our minds? He further describes what that sacrifice means. So when we sacrifice our bodies to God, what that actually means according to the apostle in this same verse is to not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So that means having different aspirations, having different goals, having different ambitions, and, and, and living for different reasons than maybe the people that surround us. But then it says that if you do this, if you give your life as a living sacrifice by not being conformed to the world, but being transformed, it, therefore, you can have an equal sign here. It says you will be able to discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. And this, to me, is a perfect summary of the idea that the disciples were not in a position to know the will of God, to know what was good, acceptable, and perfect until by the, the, the experience of, of pretty much fire, by the experience of pain and suffering, living through what Jesus lived through, you know, drinking of the cup that Jesus had to drink from. It wasn't until they had gone through that and they had received the power of the Holy Spirit that they were then able to discern the will of God. And so for myself, I'm going to read one more passage. Um, this is from Acts of the Apostles 48, uh, paragraph 1. And this is kind of a description of the disciples after this experience, after they had you know, received the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit. It says, every Christian saw in his brother, and this is described in the first church, like I said, every Christian saw in his brother a revelation of divine love and benevolence. One interest prevailed. One subject of emulation swallowed up all others. The ambition of the believers was to reveal the likeness of Christ's character and to labor for the enlargement of his kingdom. I'm going to read that last sentence one more time. The ambition of the believers was to reveal the likeness of Christ's character and to labor for the enlargement of his kingdom. And so I come before you um, as somebody who who does have ambitions, you know. I, I'm sure we all do. Um, I'm sure we all have earthly ambitions as well. And I'm not saying that that's wrong. But what I do believe strongly in my heart is that there is a need for sometimes maybe a shaking of what our ambitions are in our hearts, a repri reprioritization of what our ambitions should be. And my prayer is that our first ambition would be to make our lives one in which we are able to sacrifice ourselves for the good of others, where the good of others is our first ambition. The love of God is our first ambition, and the desire to reveal his likeness to others be our first ambition. And the reason why I, I, I think that is important is because we have seen that it is not until that is the first and driving purpose of our hearts. It's not until that happens 
that we're able to then understand what, it is, what is God's will and what his will is for your life and my life. So to finish up, I would just like, like to ask you to stand with me as we have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, I am coming before you right now, uh, first of all, thanking you. Because in every step of your story, Father, you, you've been seeking to reveal yourself to, to your disciples and to us. I know that we can all look back to moments in our lives in which you have tried to reveal yourself to us. And I want to ask forgiveness for, the t- for all those moments in which my personal pride, my personal um, selfish ambitions, Father, stood in the way of me being able to receive your truth, being able to receive um, your, your presence in my life. So my prayer for this week, Father, for myself and for all of us here today is that you would teach us to, to seek you first, Father, to make you first in our lives, uh, to surrender our pride, to surrender our ambition. And we know that that cannot take place um, out of our own strength or, or willpower. So we, we come before you asking for that same Holy Spirit power that enabled the disciples to live a change, Father, because we know that it wasn't until you intervened that they were able to receive you. And so we pray for that reality on our hearts in this church today, right now, Father. And we ask, not because of our own merits, Father, but believing in the merits of the sacrifice of your Son. Amen.